Hello, everybody. I'm Danny Boom Boom McCarthy. Welcome, everybody, to the Story of Nowhere podcast. I am your host, Daniel McCarthy. I hope all of you living in the Northern Hemisphere are enjoying the coming of the warm months, and I hope all of you sub-equatorial folks are well prepared for winter. I trust you'll all forgive my laxity in releasing episodes lately. Those of you who heard my last episode will understand the reason behind this. My wife Alice and I have at last had our baby, and have been enjoying, and enduring, all of the joys and trials that come with living with a one-month-old. Watching a person come online a little bit more with each passing day is an experience like no other and I can't express in words the awe inspired by observing such a mystical blossoming. But, getting to the point, today's show is the beginning of a new series. I'm well aware that I've got some unfinished series still on the burners. I've still got an episode on post-millennial eschatology in the works, and Kevin Cole and I still plan to do a third installment in our Beyond the Velvet Ropes series. These will be completed in due time, but I wanted to get this particular series rolling because there is a timeliness to it. That's not to say it's about current events, per se. Rather, it has to do with a big anniversary coming up this year. But the series itself is fundamentally about deep politics and warfare. The subject of deep politics has come up quite a bit in recent episodes, but I haven't really tore into the topic with the rigor it warrants. This series will be that, although I'll be coming at the issue sideways. I don't want to say too much about it here in my little opening salvo. I'd rather you just experience the show as it unfolds, and hopefully it'll all make sense to you by the end of this episode. Go to storyofnowhere.com slash library to check out the books I've got for sale. Go to RoadToHellFilmReviews.com to listen to the dystopian sci-fi movie review show I do with my friend Nikki P. Go to MPLFest.org to get tickets to the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest, where I'll be at the end of next month. Subscribe to the podcast and recommend it to your fellow weirdos. And, please, go to StoryOfNowhere.com and peruse the show notes for this episode and all subsequent episodes in this series. There's going to be a lot of really good resources in there for anyone who wants to dig deeper into the study of the deep state. Now, let's get to it. Dallas. Introduction. Peering into the state of nature. It has been said that war is the health of the state, 
Most fundamentally, a people's ability to mobilize for war corresponds to that people's ability to survive in a hostile environment. When the barbarians come charging over the hill, a society must be willing and able to fight, or it will die. But societies will often mobilize for war even when their survival is not under active threat. They will gather armies to conquer foreign lands, to hoard resources and slaves, and to glorify themselves at the expense of their neighbors. War demands stern and disciplined leadership. It justifies internal control and the expansion of the powers of the society's leader. Many the curtailment of political and economic liberty has been blanketed by the crisis of war. In short, external warfare, if managed properly, can bolster the power of the state. However, internal warfare is implicit within the structure of the state as well. The ultimate purpose of this series is to explore the nature of this internal war as it applies to the modern state, in particular, the United States of America. Before this analysis can proceed, we must begin by defining what is meant by state and what is meant by war. We begin with an explanation of the state in its modern sense. The German social theorist Max Weber famously defined the state in a 1918 lecture as a, quote, human community that successfully claims the monopoly of the legitimate use of physical force within a given territory, unquote. To Weber, this monopoly on violence was a hallmark of modern states. In feudal monarchies, kings lacked an outright monopoly on violence because vassals held virtual autonomy over their fiefdoms. Kings were also, in theory, acting under the authority and with the approval of, or if not, in opposition to, the Catholic Church. In modern societies, sovereignty, the power to act on one's own authority, which was once dispersed amongst the king, his lords, and the Catholic Church, has coalesced into that entity called the government, or the state. In some societies, state power was and is effectively claimed by one man, an absolute monarch, an emperor, or a dictator. But in our post-Enlightenment world, where liberalism is generally hailed as the best of all political traditions, it's claimed that the people of a given society are the state, this is possible because the individual is himself sovereign, and by entering into compacts with other sovereign individuals, consensual governments are established among equals. Through the process of democratic elections, the people choose representatives, and that organization, which is called government, is composed of those representatives. When this representative government, therefore, exerts its monopoly on violence— it does so, it is said, on behalf of and under the authority of the people themselves. Sovereignty belongs to the public. Despite the rhetoric of individual and popular sovereignty, representation, and the consent of the governed, modern states exist not to commit legitimate violence on behalf of the people, but precisely because they are willing to commit violence on the people they allegedly represent, and on others as well, regardless of what the people want. The state, or the government, perpetuates itself by means of deception and coercion, and where there is deception and coercion, there is no consent. Liberalism has amounted to little more than a rhetorical vehicle for external conquest and internal repression by states. Granted, the liberal state will, at times, satisfy the will of the people, just as other states which deny individual and popular sovereignty have done. Criminals will be apprehended, sometimes. Roads will be paved, sometimes. 
Financial benefits will be doled out, sometimes. Popular wars will be waged, more often than not. The occasional placation of the masses serves to quell revolutionary pressure and to uphold the liberal state's image in the public mind as somewhat competent and at least not totally malevolent. But the purpose of the state, despite the dreams of the Enlightenment's greatest liberals, is not the satisfaction of the public will, nor is it the exercise of popular sovereignty. The question which naturally arises is, what, then, is the true purpose of the state? We must leave this question to the side for the time being, while still holding it in our minds, until we have adequately explored the nature of the state. In terms of the real exercise of power, the liberal conception of the state as being composed of equal parts representative and represented is practically inadequate. There is a very clear asymmetry of sovereignty. In actual fact, the state does what it pleases, despite the wishes, interests, and needs of the individual, minority groups, and even, often, the majority. Forces other than the public will financial and industrial forces, military and paramilitary forces, intellectual and academic forces, and scientific and technological forces push and pull the activities of official representatives. Therefore, these other forces control state power to an extent. Put another way, these forces are able to use the state's monopoly on violence to pursue their own agendas and act, as it were, outside and above the law. If the state is that entity which claims a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence, the state can, in effect, selectively sanction illegitimate uses of violence by not legitimately enforcing the law in certain cases. In short, the state can be used by the powerful to legitimize their use of violence. In reality, then, the state is not merely comprised of representatives and the represented, but must also include those specially interested actors who are in a position to use the state's monopoly on violence and its perceived legitimacy as cover for the pursuit of their own ends. This broader, de facto state, which encompasses official and non-official individuals and organizations, has been given several names. By American philosopher James Burnham, the managerial elite. By American sociologist C. Wright Mills, the power elite and by Canadian political analyst Peter Dale Scott, the Deep State. We'll stick with Scott's term, Deep State. In his book, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, Scott defines deep politics, which is synonymous with deep state, as, quote, all those political practices and arrangements, deliberate or not, which are usually repressed rather than acknowledged, unquote. For our purposes here, I offer a more thorough and, admittedly, more wordy definition. The deep state is the ecosystem of popularly unseen and unofficially acknowledged incentive structures, which arises from the symbiosis between 1. The acknowledged, overt, official representative government, military, and law enforcement structures. 2 the semi-acknowledged but largely secretive bureaucratic, military, intelligence, media, and corporate structures, and three, the unacknowledged, extra-legal, criminal, paramilitary, intelligence, clandestine, and terrorist structures. All three of these categories exercise coercive force domestically and abroad, sometimes in tandem and sometimes in opposition to one another, but all 
are bound together in a matrix of secrecy regarding their interrelation, the revelation of which would threaten the stability of the ecosystem as a whole. These various elements operate in secret in order to uphold the public perception of the legitimacy and efficacy of the representative state and to facilitate the system's built-in penchant for expansion. The deep state is the swirling, spanning sea which thrashes just beneath the thin ice sheet of perceived political order. Defined this way, it's clear that the deep state is not a formal group. It is a category. Deep state actors are not all in cahoots, though from time to time some elements do collude, albeit provisionally, when the situation demands cooperation or when interests converge. The deep state is characterized as an ecosystem in order to convey the hostility and competition implicit within it. The various actors, or species, compete for survival and dominance. Some succeed, others go extinct. But again, all are bound by one common need, secrecy. The nature of such an ecosystem, lying underneath the copacetic political order in which these various factions dance and make war, cannot be revealed, for its revelation would be to the detriment of all involved. A deep state actor revealing the true scope and nature of the deep state would be like the turtle draining the swamp to kill the crocodile. Though he may be hunted by the predators within the ecosystem, and thus may find it expedient to sabotage certain elements of the ecosystem at times, the lesser animal still relies upon the relative stability of the same ecosystem as his superiors. Should a turtle be mad enough to attempt such a pyrrhic defense, he would set the whole of the ecosystem against him. Even his fellow turtles would conspire to see his destruction. On the subject of inferiors and superiors, it must be noted that one's actual status within the deep state is not necessarily determined by his or her nominal position or rank within the official representative government or state. It's not by any means a rule, for instance, that the President of the United States has more real power or influence than, say, the Vice President or the head of the CIA. Nor is it a rule that all people who hold a given office, say that of the president, are created equal. One president may be significantly more or less powerful in real terms than his predecessor. Activity within the deep state is based less upon vertical relationships, that is, those relationships in which formal orders are passed down from superior to subordinate, than on horizontal relationships, in which decisions are made privately and informally, by personally connected and interested individuals in pursuit of publicly unaddressed or unacknowledged ends. Discovering some of the members and some of the ends of the deep state is essential to the purpose behind this series. In his 1992 book, JFK, retired Air Force Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty, a former liaison between the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the CIA, writes that modern statecraft is founded upon four axioms. They are, writes Prouty, quote, 1. The concept of real property, a function of colonialism that began with the circumnavigation of Earth by Magellan's ships in 1520. A doctrine of discovery and rights of conquest was described by John Locke in his philosophy of natural law. 2. The population theory of Malthus. 3. Darwin's theory of evolution, as enhanced by the concept of the survival of the fittest. 4. 
Heisenberg's theory of indeterminacy, that is, that God throws the dice, and similar barriers to the real advancement of science and technology today. Unquote. The deep state today operates upon these four foundations, what Proudy calls, quote, a quartet of the greatest propaganda schemes ever put forth by man, unquote. The first point, that of real property, concerns the supposed right of a superior military force to claim ownership over already inhabited lands. The second point, the population theory of Malthus, states in effect that the planet's resources can only bear a relatively small human population, and that the current population is far, far too high. The third point, Darwinism, scientifically justifies a might-makes-right world in which only the best survive. The fourth point, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, calls all of objective reality into question, meaning that the perceived rules can be bent and that there is no common ground of rationality and objectivity on which the ordinary man may rebuke the powerful man. Put Proudy's quartet together, and you get a cabal of individuals who believe that the world and everything in it is theirs for the taking, that most of the world's population isn't fit to survive, and besides, there aren't enough resources for them anyway, and that reality is to be molded and distorted, not observed and respected, by the fittest. This is the operative mindset of the deep state. Some, of course, will bristle at the evocation of the deep state. Conspiracy theory is the tired cry. But is the deep state a conspiracy theory? Is it even really a conspiracy in the real sense? In Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, Peter Dale Scott quickly dispenses with the conspiracy rebuke. Quote, The essence of conspiracy is a single objective and or control point. Deep politics or the deep state, in contrast, is an open system with divergent power centers and goals. Unquote. To reiterate, it is not a formal group. It is not a monolith. There is no deep state headquarters where card-carrying members report every Friday the 13th to drink goat's blood and plan the next 9-11. It's a category. Fundamentally, it refers to that loose collection of people, private and public, who are able to influence or use the state's monopoly on violence to their own various ends from time to time. That's the essence of it access to the monopoly. It is true that conspiracies occur within the deep state. Businessmen collude with campaigns. Bankers buy off congressmen. The media covers up clandestine operations. Conspiracies involving both government and non-government actors occur, and the deep state is the networking landscape in which they occur. And these conspiracies will continue to occur, just as the deep state will continue to exist, so long as humans remain human. People's interests converge and entangle, and people's relationships don't neatly abide formal hierarchies of office. This ecosystem is the natural result of there being an organization with something so enviable as a monopoly on violence. Power seekers, psychopaths, and the plain old myopically self-interested can't help but race for the ring of power. The existence of the deep state isn't a conspiracy theory. It's common sense. In recent years, Deep State has come under fire for not only being a conspiracy theory, but worse, a right-wing conspiracy theory. 
This, of course, is the result of the term being bandied about by Donald Trump and the MAGA crowd, who have employed it to mean the so-called liberal establishment, that coterie of apparently left-leaning bureaucrats, pundits, and academics who have supposedly driven American policy for the past two or more decades. This analysis isn't fundamentally wrong. However, it is incomplete, as it ignores the fact that the right wing, including even the likes of Trump and his pseudo-populist MAGA ilk, are and have been deeply enmeshed in the deep state. By taking the term and reframing it to refer only to their partisan enemies, this new right deep state only serves to mislead the layman and further obfuscate the true nature of the deep state. Therefore, in effect, their misdirection ultimately perpetuates the deep state ecosystem. Referring back to the earlier analogy, Donald Trump is the turtle. By narrowing the definition of the deep state, he has merely called attention to the crocodile. He has most certainly not drained the swamp. To round out the discourse on the true nature of the state, I should clarify that my ecological analogy is not strictly original. Rather, it's classical theory updated and adapted for the modern age. The Prince by Niccolò Machiavelli and Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes, two of the most influential political works in the West, both argue that sovereigns, that is, heads of state, are not bound by the laws nor the morals of ordinary men. On the contrary, they exist in the state of nature. To Machiavelli, writing in the early 16th century when his native Italy was a mess of warring city-states, the sovereign who bound himself to the common laws and virtues of men would soon find himself beheaded, for his enemies and would-be usurpers would never chain themselves in such a manner. The sovereign must instead be animalistic, brutish, if he even hopes to hold on to his power. Quote, it is necessary for a prince to understand how to avail himself of the beast and the man. Unquote. Likewise, given this harsh reality, Machiavelli writes that all sovereigns are locked, whether they know it or not, in a state of permanent war with all other sovereigns. While law brings civilization to his people, the sovereign himself lives in eternal accordance with the law of the jungle. Hobbes, writing in England nearly a century and a half later, essentially concurred. He was by no means the first Englishman to take this approach, Already, Lord Bacon had declared that behind all the pomp and circumstance and pageantry of royalty lay nothing more than the law of conquest, that all sovereignty begins with an act of violence, and that all the rituals establishing the legitimacy of that sovereignty are mere post hoc justifications of that act of violence. Having lived to see the horrors of the English Civil War, Hobbes cynically concluded that sovereigns exist in the state of nature— that realm outside of law, contract, or compact. In the state of nature, possession is ten-tenths of the law, and the only arbiter is force. While common men and women eventually huddle under the protection of a strong man, who establishes and enforces for them laws and customs by which they might fancy themselves civilized, the strong man himself, now the sovereign, never leaves the state of nature, for his law is still force and force alone. Should another come and lop off his head, who will there be to prosecute this crime? Justice, law, and civilization itself balance precariously on the point of the king's sword, and are posed at any moment 
to plummet back into the perpetual warfare of the state of nature. Though in our liberal age, sovereignty has been diffused among the members of that group called government and the broader deep state, the same problem remains. Only now it's more complex and subtle. While Machiavelli and Hobbes concerned themselves with states in which one man was sovereign, the modern state and deep state is a multitude of princes and princesses, would-be sovereigns who struggle for dominance in an intrinsically hostile environment. The governments of modernity, replete with their bureaucracies and representative bodies, their lobbies and special interest groups, and their myriad corporate and financial pezzanovante, have succeeded not only in maintaining the eternal war that rages between nations, but in fostering an eternal war within the nation. The deep state ecosystem, the deep state of nature, is a constant and domestic battlefield. We come then to the question of sovereignty. If, as liberalism tells us, the individual is sovereign, then are we not each of us, whether we know it or not, locked in a war with all those who would seek to assert their own sovereignty over ours? If the liberal premise is not true, if the individual is not, by right, sovereign, then the people are nothing but tools, weapons in the wars being waged by the true sovereigns of the world. If the liberal premise is true, and we are all engaged in a war for our due freedom, then we damn well better understand the war before it is lost forever. Having at last defined what is meant herein by state, a discourse which has naturally progressed to the subject of war, let us recapitulate the claim made at the beginning of the show. Internal warfare is implicit within the structure of the state. Let us proceed, then, with a brief elaboration on war. In war, of course, lies the origin of the state, for the state, being a monopoly on violence in a given area, seeks to expunge from that area all competing sovereigns, a feat which can only be accomplished with force or by threat of force. The great Prussian general Karl von Clausewitz, in Vom Kriege, or On War, simply defined war as, quote, an act of violence intended to compel our opponent to fulfill our will, unquote. Therefore, all who would presume to use violence to undermine the rightful sovereignty of another enter into a state of war with that other. If we accept the liberal premise that the individual is sovereign, and on that basis allow for the possibility of the individual voluntarily subjecting himself to the sort of society of his choosing, we must conclude that anyone who would, by the use of force or duplicitousness, undermine, mutiny, or destroy that society, has aggressed against that individual's sovereignty, and has therefore entered into a state of war with that individual. Accepting that, and remembering that the United States of America was theoretically founded upon the liberal premise of individual sovereignty, it follows that elements of the deep state, which utilize the machinery of government for purposes other than and often counter to public interest, have indeed declared war upon the American people. So long as those remain who would use a monopoly on violence to pursue their own ends, and so long as the individual believes himself to be sovereign, this war will rage. It is permanent. 
But what sort of war is it? What are its attributes? To begin with, the war is asymmetrical. This means that there is an imbalance in fighting power between the belligerents. The common man, though he may be armed and reasonably intelligent, finds himself across the field from all the branches of the United States military, from local, state, and federal police, from the FBI and CIA, and myriad other well-funded agencies. And of course, these entities all have legal cover for their acts of aggression, while the individual has none. The war is unrestricted. This sort of war is not restricted to a conventional battlefield, nor is it limited to what the average person would think of as weapons. This broadens warfare to include economics and the strategic use of law in order to weaken or destabilize the enemy. The theater of war is made ubiquitous. The war is unconventional meaning that clandestine and covert agents carry out blackmail, theft, espionage, assassination, and other operations to undermine the enemy in secret. In other words, one plays what the CIA has called dirty tricks. Finally, the war is fifth-generational. This new sort of warfare employs the cutting edge of cybernetic technology in order to exploit weaknesses in people's psychology, spread false information, manipulate people's worldviews, and fundamentally control people's perceptions and therefore reactions to stimuli. There's a war on for your mind. Asymmetrical, unrestricted, unconventional, and fifth-generational. These are the attributes of this war, which we'll be exploring for the duration of this series. The war is partly physical and partly psychological. It is provoked by police and by propaganda. Now we have our battlefield, the deep state, and the sovereign knows he is at war. But how can he hope to win? Sun Tzu said, quote, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles, unquote. How might we know the enemy? Who is the enemy? How might we learn his name and of his methods? The first shot rings out. Sounding like a backfire, it misses the car completely. Frame 161, Kennedy stops waving as he hears something. Connelly's head turns slightly to the right. Frame 193, the second shot hits Kennedy in the throat from the front. Frame 225, the president emerging from behind the road sign. You can see that he's obviously been hit, raising his arms to his throat. The third shot, frame 232, hits Kennedy in the back, pulling him downward and forward. Connelly, you will notice, shows no signs at all of being hit. He is visibly holding his Stetson, which is impossible if his wrist has been shattered. Conley is turning here now, frame 238, the fourth shot. It misses Kennedy and takes Conley in the back. This is the shot that proves there were two rifles. Conley yells out, my God, they're going to kill us all. Somewhere around this time now, another shot that misses the car completely strikes James Craig down by the underpass. The car breaks. The sixth and fatal shot, frame 313, takes Kennedy in the head from the front. This is the key shot. The president going back and to his left. Shot from the front and right. 
totally inconsistent with the shot from the depository. Again, back to the left. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. interesting information. Your great-grandson and his mother are going to have Thanksgiving dinner with us. Did you ask, Lisa? No. Bob did. Bob? When did you hear this? He told me last night after he came home. Well, I must say I'm surprised. Well, frankly, I was a little suspicious. Of what? Oh, Grandpa, there has to be a reason why Bob asked Lisa, because this is the first time he's invited her here or anywhere else, as a matter of fact, since they've been divorced. Did you ask him why he invited her? He said something about not wanting her to have Thanksgiving dinner alone. He didn't think it was right. <laughs> it was real nice of the boy. And I thought about it, and I gave it a great deal of thought, Grandpa. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. United Press says that the wounds for President Kennedy perhaps could be fatal. Repeating a bulletin from CBS News, President Kennedy has been shot by a would-be assassin in Dallas, Texas. Stay tuned to CBS News for further details. It takes more than an instant to make a real cup of coffee. That's why Nescafe has come up with a new kind of coffee. It's more than an instant. It's new Minute Brew Nescafe. Anybody can make a coffee more instant, but Nescafe makes it more coffee. A new kind of coffee. Minute Brew. Minute Brew Nescafe is a new discovery. A new way to hold in extra rich flavor. So please help us. Let it brew in the cup a few seconds longer for all that extra flavor to come out. In other words, with Minute Brew Nescafe, it takes a little longer, but you get a lot more coffee. If you agree it takes more than an instant to make a real cup of coffee, buy this completely new kind of coffee today. New Minute Brew Nescafe. It's more than an instant, yet costs no more. New Minute Brew Nescafe. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson <clears throat> has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th president of the United States. The assassination of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy is a hinge upon which modern American history turns. That history might be divided into a before and an after. Arguably, the assassination marked the moment at which the 60s counterculture was embryoed, when the nation's post-war innocence was shattered and an era of discomfort and rebellion began. 
Following the death of the president, the United States fell into the hopeless Vietnam War. The military-industrial complex and the intelligence community soared to new heights of power and influence, and a mass of Americans started to question just who their government truly served. When carefully considered, the JFK assassination, with all its angles and threads, offers substantial insight into the makeup, the methods, and the motives of those in the highest echelons of the American elite. It is a window through which we might peer and spy the malevolent movements of the predators which stalk the landscape of the state of nature, that eternal battlefield which is the deep state. In this series, we will focus on the assassination of John F. Kennedy in order to learn more broadly about who really holds power in America and how they do so. While this series will feature my own original, personal analysis of the case, the actual research into the details of the murder will be largely derived from the work of others who have, tirelessly and with many pains taken, devoted their lives over the past 60 years to uncovering the truth of the events of November 22, 1963. So much ground has been trodden already, so much ink spilled, that I am not likely to uncover some heretofore unknown bit of evidence which ties the case together. Instead, I rely gratefully on those who came before, and indeed on those who continue to search for the truth, and using my faculty for rational thought, offer to compose what I find to be a compelling explanation for the events of that day, always bearing in mind that the purpose for doing so is not to satisfy some morbid curiosity, nor to entertain by spinning salacious webs of conspiracy, but ultimately to glean some understanding of the state of war in which all who consider themselves sovereign are engaged, in which John Fitzgerald Kennedy was but one of many casualties. I offer my appreciation to the following researchers on whose work I will rely throughout the course of this series. Mark Lane, Jim Garrison, Anthony Sutton, Gaetan Fonzi, L. Fletcher Prouty, Peter Dale Scott, Jim Mars, David Talbot, Aaron Good, James Corbett, and Whitney Webb. This is by no means a definitive list, for the log of researchers into the JFK assassination and the Deep State is virtually unquantifiable. There will be others whose names I will provide when their work makes an appearance. Like all states, the American state, and thus its Deep State, is founded upon conquest. Sovereigns, existing in a state of war, do violence to other sovereigns in order to win their throne. Sovereigns, to legitimize their conquests and perpetuate their rule, deceive by way of propaganda that they might fleece a complacent populace. Sovereigns, therefore, must always be alert to the threat of other marauding sovereigns, and read with a cautious eye and hear with a discerning ear the words of those that would conquer them and have their thrones and their liberty. If it be war, the sovereign must prepare himself, and preparation begins with learning. Know thyself, and know thy enemy. To this end, we turn to America's greatest murder mystery, and endeavor to come to grips with the grisly slaying of the president in the streets of one of America's largest cities. The relevance of this inquiry to the larger purpose of understanding the American deep state rests upon the premise that the assassination was not the sole work of the lone nut Lee Harvey Oswald, but rather the work of very powerful elements acting with the power, or at least the tacit approval, 
of some of those individuals who had access to the state's monopoly on violence. To establish the relevance of the JFK investigation, in the next installment of this series, we will examine the official narrative of the assassination, the Warren Commission Report, and assess whether it is an adequate account of the affair, or if it is a cover story, propaganda meant to pacify a restless but unwitting public into accepting a new cohort of murderous sovereigns. (laughs) ¶¶